This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Now, last week, Rachel, you weren't on the episode, so it's really nice to have you back after a week away. So, so thank you for making time again for coming on the show. No problem. I really enjoyed that episode, too. Yeah. Uh, now, you're actually taking the lead today, so let's throw it over to you and, uh, and you can set this episode up. Sure. So if you missed our part one of this series, we're doing part two of the A24 retrospective series. Last time we did this, we went and discussed A Glimpse Inside the Mine of Charles Swan III, which we can kindly call it Charlie Sheen's attempt at a redemption tour. Um, and that was the first installment of looking back at all of A24's movies. Now we're up with the next movie, Ginger and Rosa. Uh, but before then, I wanted to say happy belated birthday, Dakota. I know oh. last week was your birthday episode, but happy belated. Thank you so much. Um, how are you doing, though? I'm doing great. You know, I, I I got a couple more Criterion movies. So now I've finished my whole Wes Anderson collection that they have so far. They've got eight of his nine movies out. So I've got them all. Uh, so I'm very excited in preparation for The French Dispatch to do a complete rewatch of his filmography. Nice. Which were the last two that you got? I was missing Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. Very nice. I just watched Rushmore again recently. Oh, yeah? Not bad. Yeah, yeah it's still like, it's okay. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if I'm completely sold on Wes Anderson, if I'm completely honest. That's probably oh, really? a okay. discussion for a different episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like him. Like, I like the movies, but I don't think I have the same, like, love for him that a lot of people do. That's fair. Yeah, I, I'm really high on... Uh, three or four of them and then the rest of them i just like quite a bit but that kind of averages out to being like one of my favorite directors <laughs> he's you i like that he has like a unique style and it doesn't it's not like overly distracting the fact that he has like i find tarantino to be slightly distracting in okay. the style that he has That's but fair. anderson for some reason maybe i just like anderson better than tarantino but um yeah Anyways, this really got sidetracked already. Uh, That's all right. That. Um, so Ginger and Rosa, this is the next one up for our A24 series. We had a dream that we would always be best friends. It says here that boys don't like girls who are too serious. Interesting. <laughs> Where the hell have you been? We were just roving about, being free. <laughs> Soviet missiles could wipe off the face of the Earth, the United States, and Great Britain. The whole world could be blown to pieces any minute. My darling Ginger. Well, she's right. It is getting serious. Um, this is a movie. It was. It came out in 2012. Um, it was directed by Sally Potter. Um, I. I think Dakota, you mentioned you'd never seen anything from Sally Potter before, right? No, I've not. And looking through her filmography, the only move I even recognized by name was Orlando, which is, like I said, I've just recognized by name. I, I'm not too familiar with it. I just know that's a Tilda Swinton film. Yeah, so she's such like one of those niche indie British act or directors, rather. Um, the only reason I know about her is because she did a movie called The Party, uh, which had Patricia Clarkson and Killian Murphy. And I love both of those guys. So anytime that I hear they're doing a new movie, I'm all about it. Um, and it's like a really good dark comedy if you haven't seen The Party. Highly recommend it. It's pretty funny. Um, but Ginger and Rosa, we have Elle Fanning, Alice Englart, Alessandro Nivola, Christina Hendricks, Timothy Spall, Oliver Platt, and Annette Benning. So it's actually quite a stacked cast. Uh, and to give a little plot summary of, of the movie, and just to kind of warn people, we are going to get into slight spoiler territory here. It is quite an old movie now, though. Um, but we won't give away like the complete ending or anything like that. But uh, there will be one particularly major plot line that we are going to have to talk about. Um, so Ginger and Rosa, it's a coming of age story about two best friends. Coincidentally, their names are Ginger and Rosa. It's set in England in the 60s. And Ginger, in particular, is a very... She's she's a very intellectual girl. Um, they're in high school. She's incredibly angry and also equally horrified um, about the nuclear war that is brewing over in America at that time. She has two godfathers. They're called the Marks and their friend Bella, who are very encouraging of her activism. 
Rosa, on the other hand, is a bit of a wild child. Uh, she doesn't quite share in the same fears that Ginger has. However, she's pretty supportive as a friend in that respect. In addition to all that, Ginger's parents, they've split up. They're not really getting along, haven't been for some time. And this is the major spoiler alert here is uh, eventually what will happen is Rosa begins a to have an affair with Ginger's father, whose name is Roland. Um, and that obviously would tear their friendship apart as well as their as well as Ginger's family. It's an interesting movie. We're going to obviously get into it, but let's talk a little bit about how it was released or when it was released rather and how A24 acquired the movie. It was released in U in the US theaters in March of 2013. It originally showed at Telluride Film Festival and TIFF in 2012. It was after TIFF, I believe, that they um, that A24 was able to acquire it for the U.S. distribution. It looks like they had negotiated in, in the hopes that it was going to be uh, a film that would be favored in the award season um, of that year. Unfortunately, it didn't really make too much of a splash. I found the dates kind of interesting when they um, when they acquired it. So they acquired this one in September 2012, on the 25th specifically. They got Charles Swan in August 30th, and they founded A24 on August 20th. So they were incredibly busy within like a month of um, founding the company. It's an interesting movie. I definitely have thoughts. I know that Dakota has thoughts, so I've talked on for a little bit here. Um, Dakota, what do you think of the movie? Yeah, this is this is, was an interesting one where I feel like there was a lot of components that I really liked, chief among them being Elf Fanning. When when she was first coming up, it was like, oh, hey, Dakota Fanning has a younger sister. And the first time probably most people saw her was playing the younger version of Dakota Fanning in movies like I Am Sam. And then she kind of like was just being cast as the uh, cute, adorable little girl in different <laughs> movies and things like that. And, and she wasn't really given a lot to do until Super 8. I think that was when most people really noticed her as an actress in the last couple of years. I feel like she's really started to make a mark as one of the more talented young actors of that generation. You know, I think of something like the Neon Demon, which a lot of people were really mixed on, but overall pretty high on her performance. And she's in that new uh, TV show. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it right now. The Great, where she plays Catherine the Great, which seems to be getting decent reviews i haven't watched it so i can't really say and of course she's in the maleficent films but this i feel like is is right around that same time period uh it was a year after super 8 and i think she actually does a really good job in this film as as a teenage girl who is you know she's going through puberty she isn't too sure what she feels like about boys whether she's into them as much as her best friend is or not uh whether she wants to try smoking or drinking she's forming her political beliefs and at the same time going through the teenage angst phase where you hate your parents sort of thing. She handles that all really well and, and is able to convey a whole bunch of different emotions. And, and, you know, as the film sort of progresses and the pressures are surmounting onto her all sort of on the guise of her anxiety about the bomb, quote unquote, when in reality, it seems to be more of a metaphor for her family life and, and things that are going on in her home. I think she does a great job. Unfortunately, you know, I got a counterpoint that where anytime she's not on screen, the movie kind of drags to a standstill. The stuff with Annette Benning, Oliver Platt, and uh, and Timothy Spall, while they turn in very fine performances, I frankly think they add next to nothing to the actual plot itself. And the first time we meet them, I'm like, wait, what, what's going on here? What's the relationship? And then they kind of keep going back. And I wasn't fully sure exactly what the relationship was between them all. And it was not very clear as it went on, other than being just more like mentors and family friends to uh, Christina Hendricks, who plays uh, Ginger's mom. So yeah, it, it's a little confusing at times. And and, and yeah, I, I said to you earlier, I feel like there's a whole lot of really great, interesting things, but unfortunately, uh, these individual components are not better than the sum of its parts, which I think in the end is kind of uh, not great overall. It's so funny that you mention about um, like the two Marks and Bella, so Timothy Spall, Oliver Platt, and Annette Benning, because when I first saw them, I actually thought, it, I completely missed the point that Rose's father wasn't in the picture. I thought mm. Timothy Spall was her father. Me. 
too. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, that first dinner dinner conversation yes. where it looked like it was yeah. like, oh, all the parents are together. That's what I I really and I went, oh, I want Timothy Small. Like I really like him. I think he's he's got such a like a, a fatherly way about mm-hmm. him, and he's he was like the a best very comfortable three for me. Yes, a hundred percent. He's such a comforting actor. Like there's something about the way that he delivers lines, or maybe it's his his look. I don't know what it is, but he's very comforting. And when I saw them at the table, I was like, oh, okay, so he's he's the dad. I go, that's that's quite sweet. And then as it went on, I went, wait, hold, no, I don't, no, that's not the dad. I went who's the dad? I went, oh, there is no dad. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who's he then? <laughs> I was like, so I had the exact same thing. Um, I would completely agree with you though. I think that Elle Fanning is definitely the shining point of this movie. I'm not overly familiar with her work. Uh, I kind of know her, like you said at the beginning, which is terrible of knowing someone as someone's little sister, but to me, she is Dakota Fanning's little sister. Um, and it's I after watching this, I'm actually much more compelled to go back and look at some of her other work because I don't know what is going on in that Fanning household, but they're both incredibly talented actresses um, that I feel like don't get as much credit as they should. Like Dakota Fanning, I almost feel like is stuck back in. We all just look at still think of her as, you know, the little kid that was in all those movies mm-hmm. um, and Elle Fanning then becomes that little kid's little sister and it's unfair to them. Cause yeah, she's incredible in it. And uh, there were, you know, there's a lot, this movie deals with a lot of kind of heavy issues that, um, you know, like you said, great ideas in them, but maybe the execution isn't fully there, you know, this idea. And but I, the thing that I took away from it, um, like the biggest positive that I have about it is, um, this idea of especially looking at it through the lens of 2021 where a lot of the things that are going on in that movie obviously aren't they weren't okay then um but they're definitely not okay today <laughs> like you that it would be no way of of kind of i don't want to talk about cancel culture or anything like that but like that would be that would be right like kind, kind of prime for that and then all of the political activism in the background thing that was very of the time but when i relate it back to today where there's a lot of social issues going on a lot of activism online today not as much as what they were doing back then although we do have the protests every now and then and um, those can obviously get out of hand just like they did back in the 60s Uh, it's two different generations and i that for me was the most interesting part of it um kind of comparing that time period to today and how many similarities there are, but you know, in a, just in a completely different context. I think for me, the, the issue with like the, the political protesting and her political awakening, I don't think there was a good enough job sort of really incorporating that into her character. We, we hear a lot Mm -hmm. that she's really anxious and nervous about the bomb. And, you know, we see her at these different rallies and things like that, but I don't, it's so tough where I'm not too sure what to suggest they should have done instead, but I just don't feel like there was enough to really incorporate her political awakening and activism into who she is as a character. It just sort of seemed like it was a plot device to be like, oh yeah, don't forget, she's a teenager in the 60s, so she's anti-war. And like that's that kind of all it seemed to really add to her character, and there wasn't really anything more than surface level for me in that regard that's i think that's completely fair criticism you know like i i can see where that comes from because yeah it it doesn't go too deep into why she believes the way that she does other than she's just terrified that the world is about to explode Mm -hmm. you know and that is an incredibly superficial look at what was going on in the 60s um i do wonder though i if they had been american i wonder if that might have hit a little bit differently because not to say that in, in the UK at that time, they weren't also affected by it and they weren't also talking about it then. Um, But, you know, they talk about like the Cuban missile crisis, for example, very literally in the background, they talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, You kind of hear JFK's voice and uh, in a sound clip. And I don't know if that would have made a difference because, and this might just be like a bias I have from growing up in, on this side of the world in North America, um, when I think of like the nuclear threats and that I really do focus in on America as that was kind of a big issue in the States. Obviously, when you're talking about nuclear weapons, it is an international issue at that point. I, I think 
it's interesting because they, they sort of talk about it a little bit in this film. You know, during World War II, London and, and you know, all over England really were often firebombed. And so there were mm-hmm. almost entire cities that were completely leveled. London had to be almost completely rebuilt after the war, that sort of stuff like that. So it's not like England. I, I almost feel like it would make more sense for an English teen to be scared of an atomic bomb because they they understand the destruction and lives. Like, obviously, she's too young to have experienced it personally, but she probably had aunts and uncles that didn't survive the war just because their home was bombed. Or, you know, uh, you know, they, they talk about how her father, Roland, was arrested because he was a he was a conscientious objector and sort of that sort of culture of what was happening during World War II is very present in the mind of what's going on in 1960s England. So it's almost surprising that they weren't able to make it more of a character, part of her actual essence, part of her soul, as opposed to just being a plot point of she's scared of a bomb because the bomb might be coming and that makes her more scared and sort of a bit of a feedback loop and that sort of growing anxiety she has. Yeah, I wonder if it was, you know, the director, obviously, I don't know what Sally Porter had or Sally Potter had in mind exactly, but I wonder if she worked from the end and then kind of worked her way to the beginning mm-hmm. um, or started from the end and worked her way to the beginning. Like, I wonder if it was she knew that she wanted um, Elle Fanning's character, Elle Fanning, <laughs> uh, um, Elle Fanning's character to um, to kind of have that breakdown and the breakdown be in the guise of you know, something else. And, but really it was like you said, like kind of uh, some meta thing about, it was really about her family. It was about her parents and, and her best friend. Um, And then I wonder if she went, well, we need that something else. And they thought, well, what was going on in the sixties at that time? And that's a good Mm -hmm. point you mentioned about like um, how a generation would be impacted following world war two. Like, her character is effectively a boomer, right? Like is what we considered now today, the boomer generation, (laughs) the baby boomer (laughs) generation, because they were the ones born after world war two. They were the response of repopulating much of Europe at that time. So yeah, it's, 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 they obviously are impacted in a bit of a different way than, than our generation clearly. Um, But yeah, I I wonder if that that's the case. Like maybe she just, they just wanted something. She just kind of knew she had an idea of, of like a family, Drama and like I think that's an interesting point too. Is like, do you focus more on the family drama aspect of it or the political activism part of it? Because mm-hmm. it sounds like you're you're more focused on the family drama because the, the political activism was more of a almost an afterthought. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that's definitely something that I, I think I, I struggle with, and maybe that's why I wasn't connecting with it mm-hmm. as much. And I think in the end. The bomb, the, you know, the atomic bomb was more of a metaphor for what was going on. I won't reveal the absolute ending of this, but she essentially drops a bomb on everyone because she has information uh, that kind of causes a gigantic ripple in relationships to basically end in her mental state just absolutely is at its lowest as that point as she completely breaks down herself. So I wonder if, if it was just really supposed to be a metaphor, but they just spent so much time with it that yeah. it, all, it all really added up to nothing. How would you find like the filmmaking itself as opposed to the um the plot? Like I remember when we talked about Charles Swan, we kind of talked about how it didn't neither of us really kind of clocked it was the 70s. Um yeah. you know, but what about what about for this one? I I I actually think it was it was quite a well-made film in terms of the locations that they were using and and you know what they're trying to achieve. I did find it a little bit interesting. I'm not huge at usually noticing them, but there were several split diopter shots in this movie. I'm, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with that term, but for anyone that I'm isn't. I'm not, no. Okay, well, for anyone that isn't, it basically means is you have a subject in the foreground and the background, and they're both in focus. So basically what ends up happening is you have, I, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, you have basically half a lens for one thing that you want to focus and then the other one is the regular lens so that way they're both looking like and they're they're both in focus because normally with the camera lens you can only focus on one thing at a time based mm-hmm. on its distance so this there would be like a, a couple shots at the very end specifically where uh ginger and roland were in the hospital 
And so Ginger was sitting, you know, in front of Roland. Roland was, you know, quite a few feet behind him, but they were both in the same shot, both completely in focus. And I, and I noticed them about three or four times, these split diopter shots. And so it was just very interesting that they were so noticeable. Usually a film will only use it maybe once because it's a, it's a very sort of a tricky filmmaker tool to use that you don't really want to overuse. And when you do use it, something like a Dutch angle, it has to have a real meaning behind it. And so it was just sort of intriguing that I, I noticed quite a few of them in this movie. That's so interesting. I think I want to go back and take a look at that now. I'm not too great with like the, in terms of like technical filmmaking stuff. So I find that stuff really, really interesting to learn about. Um, is So the the purpose of using a shot like that, I would assume, is that you can have a strong focus on two actors or two, or I guess two characters rather, mm-hmm. um, and seeing their... I mean, perhaps contrasting facial cues or something like that. Is that kind of the reason for it is to just build like a dual kind of image, I suppose? Yeah, I, I think it's it's the sort of device where, unlike a Dutch angle, when when you use that, it usually means something is askew and mm-hmm. you should be concerned or, or or not aware of what's really going on. Uh, whereas this, I think there isn't really a set definition for what it means. It's more just a, a different filmmaking tool you can employ, but just one that mm-hmm. happens to be a very noticeable one for for people that like are aware of it. And so, yeah, like. When specifically talking about the final scene when they're in the hospital together, when Ginger is, I think, narrating a letter she wrote or writing in her diary or something like that, it's her kind of, you see her thinking these words that she later writes and then using Roland's emotions of trying to figure out what he's feeling at the same time. So you can just watch both at the same time sort of thing without them having to be directly side by side or, you know, using a split screen shot or, or whatever else you want to use or a back or um a shot reverse shot sort of thing. So, so it's just, it's just a different way to shoot a scene. Basically, it doesn't have to mean something other than the fact mm. that you're seeing both people's reactions at the same time. That's interesting. What, yeah. what's the reason for them not, or for filmmakers not using it too often in a movie then? I'm, I'm not totally sure. I just think it's something that like, is just very noticeable where when you see it, you're kind of, you kind of perks you up and be like, Oh, what's, what's the reasoning for that? Why are you doing that? And then you're, and then I don't know. I, I sort of feel like certain stuff like that directors almost want to more subtly use it because you'll mm, watch something right. and you'll be like, something was off and I don't know what was off and it's making me feel a certain way. And later you learn, oh, it's because they're employing, you know, a certain camera trick or, or something like that. And it's it's just a way to sort of add weight and feeling to a scene. But soon as you start noticing what the director and the cinematographer are doing, it basically removes the power that they have over you. That's true. Yeah. Do you ever find, this is a bit off topic, but do you ever find that you know, I the first the what I'm thinking of is Spike Lee's like his dolly zoom, like that yes. is very trademark of him. Mm-hmm. Do you find sometimes that it's like he's shoehorning it into a movie? Um, maybe sometimes. I quite like his, his double dolly zoom that he calls it. I believe. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I, I it's never really bothered me, and I think for the most part he uses it at the right moments. I'm thinking specifically like in Black Klansman at the very end of mm-hmm. that. It, it's a it's a great job of yeah. showing the horror of what they're experiencing. Uh, it does a great job with it in 25th Hour as well when he's giving that big long speech. And then Do the Right Thing, of course, is, is probably where most people would recognize it from as well. So yeah, I don't know. I, I quite like the the double dolly zoom that he does. Um, so yeah, I have no I have no problems with it. I just find it interesting in terms of like when you're saying um, like filmmakers using certain angles or certain filming techniques to like, you know, get a reaction, um, which is usually associated obviously with the plot of the story. But I find sometimes when a director like Spike is Spike, like I call him like that, like we're best friends or something. (laughs) Um, Like I'm so familiar with Spike Lee um, that we kind of, if you, if he did a movie without it, we would be like, where was your, where was that? Like, where was the dolly zooms at Spike? Like you kind of just expect it from him. But then yeah. it's also interesting that every movie he does, he is able to fit it in, in a way that makes sense. Like it's not like, I, I personally don't think he shoehorns it in, but I mm-hmm. find that it's interesting how he is able to fit something 
like that into every scene and it may it kind of means something different in every movie too like it's not yes. the same rehashing of, of the effect of it isn't rehashed over and over and over again um it does mean something different and i, I find that like i mean that's just a testament to spike lee really but um anyways i was sorry yeah, I, get back on topic. That. I, I have a question for you <laughs> yeah um I think we should probably talk about uh, the gigantic elephant in this room and regarding this movie. Yes. And that is the relationship that Rosa develops with Roland. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Obviously, in the end, uh, there is a there is a bit of a fight that occurs about it. And mm-hmm. I don't want to sort of spoil that. But I think overall, it's very curious that other than Ginger being upset that her friend is seeing her father. They make no mention of the age difference between them and the fact that they're still in high school. So I assume they're somewhere between the ages of 16 and 18. Roland is clearly a man in his late thirties, maybe early forties at the oldest sort of thing where he's at least double her age and they don't make any notice of their age. Did you find that weird or confusing or gross? (laughs) All of the above, all of the above. It is, yeah, it is strange. So, so I think from what I read online is she's, they're 17 because like she had just written some okay. uh, school exams, which in and around your, your typically, like she's, they're definitely not 18 though. Like they're not okay. legal adults yet. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's like, although it makes sense because the, I think the drinking age is 18 and, and at one point Ginger can't buy a beer for herself. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and actually, as I'm saying it, though, I think that the age of consent in the UK might be 16, though. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it was back in the 60s, though, to be fair. Um, but anyways, I did That's find it all odd. the point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's still gross, even if it was it was legal. Um, I found it interesting that, like you said, there was no mention of, like, how can you be dating your, like, having an affair with your daughter's best friend who is much younger than you and whenever it when it was brought up it was you're like you're betraying your daughter because it's her friend yes, not necessarily not because of her like, age yeah not like oh it's yeah and then you know again not to spoil anything but it's like when other people find out it's more of they it's like a betrayal to them because he slept with somebody else not yes again he slept with somebody who's a child Yes. You know, it's, yeah, it's, when, that's not when it. Christina Hendricks, the the mother and wife, separated yeah. wife of him, finds out. It's it's not a how could you do this to our daughter? Or how could you do this with a girl this young? Mm-hmm. It's how could you sleep with someone else? It literally could have been like another twenty year old woman, a thirty year old woman. Like yes. it could have been anybody, right? And I think the, the response would have been the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found kind of what was interesting, and I think that this is part of building um, Ginger's character was. She continued to be friends with her daughter or with uh, with Rosa. Like they still like did their makeup together. And as she's as Rosa's about to like go on a date with her dad, which you know that's weird. And he she didn't really like the relationship with her father. It is it does strain, and she obviously is hurt by it. But like she's still kind of more than willing to to hang out like you know what i mean like to still have a fine relationship with him and all of those things together like the fact that it's it's not really made an issue and maybe that is saying something about the time period where it wasn't that uncommon like maybe like you know i'm not i'm not trying to say a decade was it was fine to date minors or anything like that but um you know maybe it wasn't as kind of repulsive as we think of it today and it was the yeah. 60s, which was kind of a more, you know, wild and flower power kind of time where they were. And and I mean, the character of Roland does bring this up as well, being like talking about, you know, social norms and societal mm-hmm. norms, rather, and like constructs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and how it's, you know, you got to think outside that box. That's how he looks at it, as opposed to I am what we would consider today, like grooming, like you're grooming a minor. Mm-hmm. Um, which is in, incredibly different. Now, the, like I mean, the movie came out in at the film festivals in 2012, so it it wasn't made like with. I don't know if it was made with the idea of like, look how the times have changed, because it doesn't seem yeah. like Sally Potter even wanted to remark on that aspect of no, it. No, yeah, and, and that's why yeah. I found most interesting about all that. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's an interesting movie to watch through the lens of today, like 2021, just because of how different things are. And considering that the 60s was supposed to be the other period of, you know, significant social change from, you know, the wartime periods, and we can leave that alone now and just kind of move on with life and get out of the shackles of what was the 30s, the 40s and the 50s, and women can work and, you know, all these different things. But in that regard, in that in this specific instance, it's like, you know, they he was trying to kind of pull off that it was it was fine. But today we would look at that and be like, no, 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 there that it, that box, that societal box that exists for a reason. And they didn't seem to have that. But I don't want to give her credit for like, trying to make a, a statement on that, because I don't think she was trying to. No, it seemed it, it, it seemed very hands off of I am not here to judge this character. You can judge mm-hmm. this character, but me as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a director, I am not judging this character. And so I found that was I found that was actually sort of interesting. You know, you you sort of take out the fact that no one seems to raise this point up. It allowed me to look at Roland and sort of judge him completely on his own. And I think Alessandro Nivola did a great job with that performance. While he's kind of a an absolute creep for for grooming this minor and sleeping with her, and it's disgusting. He actually does a really good job of of being that sort of distant father who sort of you know wants to be seen as being a good parent, but at the same time, when it comes time to actually do the work, he isn't really up for it. But then every once in a while, you get that like little sprinkle where like. He remembers that uh, Ginger said she was hungry, so when he finishes yeah. working, he makes her dinner, except for the problem is it's now 2 a.m. and she's been sleeping for hours, <laughs> and like that's him like being like, I'm trying as a parent. I'm trying. And so I, I appreciated those touches where there really seemed to actually be a real character there, and, and clearly someone who's quite troubled. And as far as the like younger woman thing, uh, Christina Hendricks, his estranged wife makes a comment at one point to him where she accuses him of of sleeping with one of his students so he clearly has a, a thing for much younger women i like i don't think he's an actual teacher but i think he's someone that is you know because he's an artist he's a bit of a mentor within that community of the arts community uh so yeah he clearly he clearly does have a propensity for sleeping with much younger women than himself yeah and it's 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 a massive plot point in it that in, in the film itself to not be like it's, it's and you, you brought this up as being the elephant in the room, but in the movie, it's not really an elephant in the room, which no. is, that's the weird thing about it. You know, that's kind mm-hmm. of the strange thing about it. But um, what did you think of Christina Hendricks's character, Nat? Um, oh boy. what did you think of her? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm usually one that's not, usually distracted by bad accents but this has to be like maybe on the list of worst accents i've ever seen she just could not pull it off especially anytime she would be angry or raising her voice the accent just completely slips and sounds like she's doing a bad cockney accent basically (laughs) so it was tough and i don't think her character was given enough to do to sort of justify ginger's animosity towards her i get it a a lot of teenagers go through a phase where they're like i don't like you mom i hate you dad that sort of thing so so i I understand that that can just be a bit of a a general plot line but the problem is when it's in a movie you kind of need to explain it a little bit more than just having a rebellious child so i'm looking at it from the parent's perspective and I get why you maybe have anger issues to your father when, you know, he's distant. He sometimes spends weeks not living at home. When he is at home, mom and dad are fighting all the time, but you want his approval. And when he does give you that approval, you feel like the the, the center of the universe, the greatest thing ever. But then I look at her relationship with her mother and there's almost nothing there. She's stern about, Hey, make sure you're there home in time. Why are you out so late? What are you doing? You know, you know, the usual questions a parent would ask you if you're out late drinking sort of thing. And we don't really get any other reason why Ginger dislikes her. Yeah. I think the, what I took from that is kind of like almost a very stereotypical view of parental, like teenage parental perspectives of your mom is the wet blanket she's the one that is nagging you to um don't do this do this you know why why do you why are you doing that kind of thing you know she is the authoritarian 
um, of the family. And that that's a, like an incredibly stereotypical view of a mom. And then the dad, on the other hand, is like, you know, he's like the cool guy. He's the one that is encouraging her to think outside, uh, to encourage Ginger to think outside and outside the box. And, you know, like when she's talking about um, her, the beginnings of her activism, he's like, yeah, that's my girl. Like, I remember when he yeah. said that, he goes, that's my girl. That's my daughter. He's like, you know, and you go, okay, like he's, he's the one that is pushing this. And then for me, what one thing I did appreciate about her character, but it also is to your point of, there's a lot of great ideas here, but it just it could have gone even deeper and it would have been better um, is I liked how they brought up this idea of Nat, you know, how can she leave her husband? What is she supposed to do at this point? Because in the 60s, if she was a housewife, most likely she went from, you know, her sixth form class and then went straight to to being a wife. You know, she she doesn't really have qualifications. She isn't hasn't doesn't have work experience so what is she meant to do she was like a painter they kind of allude to that that she was a painter um in another life and she wants to get that going again and then um and i i did like how they showed those i guess traditional i don't want to call them traditional but um more historic or more conservative uh parental roles which are which are effectively like gender roles um in the family so i thought that was interesting but you know, again, you 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 really hit the nail on the head of saying they they bring up some cool issues and some interesting ones, but they just don't delve deep enough to make it something really rich and w- worthwhile. Um, and but like I I like that part of of Nat's character. Like I thought that she kind of represented something interesting to that specifically to that time period um, of just you know her whole identity was being somebody's mother, being somebody's wife and then that was it uh mm-hmm. and then but then the kind of the weird thing is um without again spoiling too much is you know ginger at, at one point decides i'm gonna go live with my dad i'm gonna go live with roland um and when she comes back like nat is like she's glowing she is this woman she seems very happy she seems very content she's painting again like she kind of has her life on track again after her husband has left after her daughter has left you know, now yeah. she's, and I'm not sure what kind of statement she's trying to make about Nat in that sense of, you know, it, it, should she not have had children? Would would she have had been better as <laughs> just like a single woman? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's kind of an interesting change that they made for her at that point. Yeah, I, I definitely had a little bit of a, you go girl, you get your life back on track <laughs> now. <laughs> and it, it kind of almost feels very like, I don't know, it, it's like you get where, where they're going with it, but you're like, yeah, okay. Like it, it yeah. feels a bit, a bit heavy handed. I think that's what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say is that it feels mm-hmm. a little bit heavy handed at times, but I did appreciate that they included that. Um, especially because of, you know, that kind of flip of the Roland is the cool dad. He's the cool parent. And then turns out he's an absolute like trash human being. Who's the yeah. one that betrays her the most. But then in the end, it's like, I, you know, after that betrayal, you know, Al Fanning's character is just kind of like, oh, like I'll I'll forgive you. Like that's cool. Don't worry about it. Like, you know, kind of continues on. Like when, like you said, when she's uh, when he wakes her up to have to to give her food, like hours after the fact, she's like, I'm sleeping, and he goes, Oh, so you don't want it? And she goes, No, no, no. Like I'll have it. I'll have it. Like why are you trying to appease this man who is sleeping with your best friend? Like that's yeah. It's it's a strange thing, and I again, I'm not sure if it was purposeful that it was supposed to be that, um, you know, she had such dis little regard for something like that, um, or if it was just a bit of a miss in the plot line. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I, I will sort of say I, I think sort of the last thing I really want to sort of touch on about this movie is there's a big climax where sort of everything comes to a head. I mentioned earlier where some secrets eventually come out. And the main one is that we learn more people learn about uh, Roland and Rose's relationship. That really is the, the best scene in the film for me. And the only scene where I actually feel like the marks and, uh, and, uh, and Bella, their purpose is actually needed there. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like the marks, especially Mark one, who is played by Timothy Spall, uh, 
is sort of seen as the antithesis of Roland, where they're they're both the, the sort of the same coin. They're both uh, political dissidents. They they have strong opinions. They're they're creative. They're they're arty. They're thoughtful, intelligent. They're people you can easily look up to. The difference being. Uh, one is a, a scumbag who can't keep his marriage straight and sleeps with uh, underage women, and the other one uh, is a respectable member of society who I'm, I believe, I'm, I'm guessing based sort of on the way it's framed, he is uh, gay and in a relationship with Mark II, the Oliver Platt character. I can't really tell; they don't really make any reference to that. I don't know. Uh, but, but I, I sort of felt that there were sort of the two sides of the the same coin. Did you sort of feel that as well? Yeah, I and you know, I I think they were gay and from what I've seen online is that is the interpretation, but um once again, it it's you know, th- maybe Sally Potter just likes a bit of ambiguity in her in her storytelling like that. Um but I uh, yeah, I I like that. I liked I really liked Timothy Spall. She, for me, he was the highlight of the movie. Um Next to sorry, next to Elle Fanning. Elle Fanning is definitely the highlight of the movie. But in terms of like all the supporting characters outside of Ginger and Rosa, I think I think Tim Lee, Timothy Spall is and his character is the one that I found more most drawn to. The one that, you know, he is the voice of reason. He is the one that shows that, yeah, you can have all of these kind of free thinking and belief in um, you know, freedom of whatever freedom in general i suppose um to Mm -hmm. to do what you want and but yet in a in a very mature and reserved and logical way that doesn't seek to harm anybody whereas roland is yeah he's like an extreme interpret like an extreme character of of that you know type of person i suppose um whereas whereas that mark is is the one that you kind of hope that's what people are like in real life. Um, mm-hmm. And then Roland is kind of like the Twitter version of that. It's <laughs> just completely <laughs> extreme and, you know, thinks that, you know, he's, he's like, if, if he existed today, he would, you know, have like a man bun or something. I don't know. He would be like that, but <laughs> you know, that, that for me is the two, but I, I like them. I, I like that, that kind of, um, you know that that contrast between the two. Um, yeah. overall though, I think it's it's a it's a fine movie. Like I I didn't I can't say I didn't like it. I can't say though it's one of those movies that I'm like, oh, like remember I I, I love that movie. Like I wanna I wanna rewatch it over and over and over again. Which for me that's always mm-hmm. a sign of whether or not I like a movie a lot is I end up rewatching it a ton. Um, yeah. And this, I don't think, but it's, it's like, as again, it's not one that is bad. It's not a terrible movie. It's not, it's not one that, um, I would have any, like a huge negative review for It's just, it's fine. And I don't know if that's like maybe even a worse crime for film when it's just fine. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of, you're kind of indifferent to it. It's just fine. Um, but overall for you, I'm like, are you along the same lines? Like it's just kind of in the middle for you. Yeah. Th- like, I I think similar to what you're saying, if I'm not going to be recommending this movie to other people to watch, yeah, then okay. like I don't I don't really know what to say about it. Like at least with our last episode, a glimpse inside the mind of Charles Swan the Third, I can at least recommend that and be like, hey, it's not very good, it's not very fun, <laughs> but you'll probably sort of enjoy watching it because it's a train wreck. Yeah, fair, fair. Whereas this one, there's nothing, you know, even kind of to that and like bad entertainment. There's that that yeah. doesn't really exist with this. How do you feel about um, coming of age movies in general? Are you a fan of them? Are you drawn to them? Not really. I, I find that they're usually a little too cliche ridden. I agree with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't know if it's growing up watching all the uh, like the John Hughes movies on on TBS or whatever, like just constantly rerunning those ones. And I mean, they're good. I, I like like breakfast club i really love um but i don't know if it's you know we get hit over the head a little bit too much with them and they're a bit Mm -hmm. cloying too like i always think like yes by the time i became a teenager and i went through i was like oh life isn't like that like it was not like how in the movies you thought it would be like it's not life wasn't nearly as dramatic as as you know a john hughes movie which thank god so yeah i would sort of relate it to saying something like a rom-com or romantic drama where I'm like, there's about, you know, 
a dozen or so absolute top tier fantastic films mm-hmm. in the in the coming of age rom com romantic drama all those sort of genre genres but then there's like hundreds of copycats which take the exact same plot points but do it a whole lot worse yeah that's a really really good point yeah especially like with romantic comedies in particular it's not a it's definitely not one that i like a genre that i i go to but every now and then like there is a really really good one and that makes you go oh maybe they're not all terrible coming of age ones i don't know if i've ever seen like a terrible coming of age movie but it might be i don't watch too many of them um Mm -hmm. but i just i just kind of find them like yeah they're a bit predictable they're a little formulaic you know where they're going to end up you know Mm um i don't know you just know how it's going to go you know that it's going to be relatively positive um at the very end like your end conclusion is going to be moderately positive and i suppose the whole idea of being coming of age movie is at the end of the movie is they still have like those characters will still have their whole life to live beyond like once beyond um you know the screen fading to black is they the the characters will kind of continue on and it should be optimistic because it would be incredibly depressing to be like oh these kids that have their whole life ahead of them it's actually going to be shit coming up yeah um but yeah i don't know i'm I'm with you though i'm not it's not one that i'm terribly drawn to and there are some really good examples out there of some but um yeah it's not one that i'm a huge fan of and i like that like i feel like we need to see more coming of age movies though that are like I think Superbad was like a, I don't know if that is that considered a coming of age movie Superbad? Yeah, I would call that a coming of age. Yeah. yeah. I like that like that kind of thing. I I kind of like where it's just a bit silly and there's not, you know, super it's not super emotional sometimes cuz I'm like that it doesn't always need to be a super emotional. Um Well, I think while we're on this topic, maybe we should get into the the more fun aspect because I feel like I have a point that sort of relates to that. Sure. Yeah, are we doing the double double billing? Yeah, let's do that. Let's get into it. Go ahead. You go first. You have a you have a good one. Go for it. Okay, yeah. So I was thinking about this, and at first I was like, okay, well, this movie is about uh, friendship between between two young girls, so maybe what would work with that? And so along the lines of Superbad, I was thinking, oh, you know what? Book smart. So I thought that was going to be kind of interesting, but that's really much more of a pure comedy, and I, and I really don't think the two of them would mesh that well together in that regard. Uh, but okay. I do feel there is some overlap as far as uh, two young women who are finishing high school and they're realizing that their lives are much different. The difference being that they, in the end, come back together and realize that they do have things in common still. So I decided to scrap that as my double pairing and instead am going with an education. So I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but it's from 2009. It was directed by Lon Scherfig. If I get to university, I'm going to read what I want and wear black. Now that shows you're a rebel. They don't want that at Oxford. No, they don't want people who can think for themselves. Of course they don't. Hello, but I'm a music lover and I'm worried about your cellos. (laughs) Jump in. What's this? Jenny's been sent some flowers from a tap. Thank you. Listen, I'm glad I ran into you. What are you doing on Friday? Nothing. I won't allow it. That's him. You got me right. And it stars Carrie Mulligan. It really was the, the breakout role for me that I, I learned her in. And it's a coming of age story uh, where she is a, a young teenage girl in the 1960s in England who she starts dating an older man that's almost twice her age and it's the relationship that she has and i'm not too sure i don't think he's like a teacher or something like that but he it's it's just a very similar sort of story that rosa goes through and so i think that's what kind of works it way together but in the end it, her experience is sort of mary uh mere ginger's experiences so i i think it kind of combines both characters into its own thing so have you seen this movie before I haven't actually. I haven't. Um, no offense to Carrie Mulligan. I was never a, not a huge fan. I shouldn't say I wasn't a huge fan of hers. I just I kind of would see her in like period movies, and I was like, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. Like, shit. so I kind of I stuck her into that pigeonhole of you're just a period actress. Although I didn't do that to Kira Knightley though, so I don't know what I have against <laughs> Carrie Mulligan. But after I saw Carrie Mulligan in uh, Promising Young Woman, then I realized, yeah, I'm very wrong about her. And I need to, an education was one that um, kept coming up. 
that of one that like you you have to watch it. So no, I haven't seen it, but I I should definitely. I didn't even know that that's what it was about actually. To be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so I think it's it's it was her breakout role. She got an Oscar nomination for it, very well mm-hmm. deserved. And it's sort of similar to like a Timothy Spall type of character. Alfred Molina plays her father and that very sort of overbearing, but very lovable father figure that you can't help but look up to. And and Peter Sarsgaard plays her love interest in it. So it, oh. it's a really fascinating movie and, and one that I feel like used to be talked about a lot, but now no one really talks about it anymore. But yeah, if, if you haven't seen a lot of Carrie Mulligan movies, I really would recommend that one, especially if you like Promising Young Woman. It's obviously a completely different type of movie, but really showcases her range as well. And Alfred Molina is also in uh, Promising Young Woman, too. Yes, that's true, as as her father as well. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's interesting. She's in that, too. Uh, he's in that, too. That's cool. No, I, I should definitely get around to watching that, and just more of Carrie Mulligan movies in general. Although I saw The Dig. she Yeah, that was hers, right? Yeah, The Dig. Yeah. That was hers. She was really good in that, I didn't too. mind that one. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty good for what it was. I was like, that was an enjoyable, you know, hour 45 of my time. I... Uh, that is literally exactly what I would say. It's like, it was a good movie. Like it was yeah. absolutely, it's not one that I thought was like groundbreaking or something that I went, yes. Like again, like this isn't going to be like a rewatchable thing for me, but um, it was one that I go, that that's a well-made good movie. I, I don't like Lily James as cast in that though. That was my only <laughs> issue with it. Not Nothing against her. It was just, I thought she was mm-hmm. way too, like she's too young to be in that role. Um, yeah, I agree. But anyways, I digress. Uh, that's a good pick, though. That's like that's awesome. I like that 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 idea of, of taking um, kind of Rosa's side on it because in it's called Ginger and Rosa the movie, but it really is just Ginger's movie. It's not really too much of Rosa's story. It's like she's she's in there, but it is it's about Ginger's life, not Rosa's life. Yeah. Um. So it would be that would be yeah interesting to see kind of her side of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what is your double bill pairing? So I did the same as you and I kind of looked and Booksmart was one that I, I um, instantly thought because I think nice. that that's a pretty obvious one because you want to think of like other coming of age movies um, yep. that did that. But what I did was focused a bit more on the political side of um, oh. of Ginger and Rosa. And I was interested in looking at something that was relevant to today because I'm always struck by... I okay. I don't like this this kind of weird tribal discourse that there is online these days of pitting different generations against each other, um, because mm-hmm. it's a very you know very made up thing, <laughs> you know, like baby boomers versus millennials versus Gen Z. Like it's it's very odd thing that has kind of come up in the last what, six months, like a year. It's a very new thing, and um, but I was always struck by this idea of the older generation, i.e. baby boomers, being kind of the ones who are pushing against the social, you know, the social progress and the social injustice that's being had today, that we're seeing today, because they are the generation that grew up in post-World Wars, Vietnam era, like the the protest era. These guys were the first real, you know, group in in um in recent human history that pushed past, you know, the boundaries of what, uh, what was considered normal, what was considered okay. They were the ones who fought against that. And now they're kind of coming in, looking at a younger generation saying, you know, Hey guys, like kind of know your place. Like don't stop complaining so much and this and that. And I, I find like, to me, that's always a bit of a fascinating, um, conversation to have like with, with our parents' generation. Uh, so, but I wanted to look at, a, it's, I'm cheating a little bit because it's not a movie. It's actually an HBO series. Um, and I wanted to look at something that had our current day social issues from the lens of a woman. Um, and I went with I May Destroy You, the HBO series. Uh, so okay. have you seen it? No, I have not. It is very, very good. It's fantastic. So it's really, really good. And um, there's a newcomer in it, or a newcomer at least to, to North American audiences, uh, Michaela Cole. It's 12 episodes from HBO. It's set in London. So it's also a British um British set movie or TV show. And it's about a millennial who is like a Twitter hero. She's like a Twitter icon, you know, whatever you want to call those um social media famous people these days. And she's got a book deal and she's about to write her second book. Um she goes 
through a really horrific sexual assault. And the show kind of follows along with her uh, coming to terms with it and also finding like, I guess, seeking just or her um, revenge on this person who did that to her. So the mo- or the show throughout all 12 episodes touches a lot on issues of racism, issues of uh, gendered violence, sexism, uh, talks about, you know, social media, dating apps, you know, and, and it was made before the Black Lives Matter movement. However, it's very applicable to it. And it definitely throws things in um, within the Me Too movement that had happened a few years back now. So I, I like this choice just as kind of a that was then that was like those were some of the issues that were plaguing young people in the 60s in Britain and this is the issues of today and it's through the lens of a woman um but this time it's a black woman who lives in London uh so I I chose I may destroy you that is a that's a terrific pick yeah I, I am I'm familiar with it and I've seen clips from it and it looks really fascinating I'm just so behind on my TV shows, but uh, but I'm glad you picked that one in, and I'll forgive you for cheating this time. <laughs> I, I couldn't because I couldn't think of I I had an idea. I kind of did what I was claiming Sally Potter did, which was I had like an idea at the end, and I worked my way backwards. I knew the kind of movie I wanted to have, and I just couldn't think of one that hit exactly. And then I thought of I May Destroy You, and I thought that that is kind of what I wanted to achieve with that, which is just showing what a character like Ginger today might be fighting for. Yeah, I I think that's a great pick. So the next bit, the would you rather. Now, Dakota and I both struggled a little bit with this one because it's hard to be appropriate with with this movie in particular. And I came up with one that I think is very obvious, but I thought if you asked me that, I would have been like, okay, Dakota, we got to cut. Like, I'm not answering that on a podcast. That's not <laughs> happening. So I thought it's not fair. But what did you come up with for the would you rather? I'm guessing you you didn't want me to ask, would you rather sleep with your best friend's father or have your best friend sleep with your father? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was exactly no, I it. I went, go that route. Yeah, I went, I, I can't. Like, there is no, in a million years, I wouldn't ask, like, I wouldn't answer no. it. So I can't ask yeah. Dakota that. <laughs> So you know what? Uh, I went on the complete opposite spectrum and decided to be a little bit more playful. As a teenager, would you rather sit in a tub to shrink your skinny jeans and have denim dye all over your body? Or would you iron your hair straight with a household iron and risk burning your head? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, the you. jeans, the, the skinny jeans, <laughs> denim dye all day. I'm actually somebody... And this is incredibly not um, very tangential, but actually not really because you asked me the question. Um, I I do not like I don't straighten my hair. I don't do anything to my hair. I'm very one of those people that I'm very against like heat on my hair because it's very damaging. Anybody listening out there? I'm sure people know this. Don't damage your hair with heat like that. So it's not about burning your head, Dakota. It's about damaging your hair. Okay? You don't want to damage your hair. It's very important. No, I, I, I will I, tell the story there. I remember once in elementary school, uh, a girl came to school and she had uh, a burn mark on her forehead. And I was like, what did <laughs> what happened? And she's like, I was ironing my hair and I accidentally got too close to the iron. I'm like, what do you mean you're ironing your hair? <laughs> well, you know, using an iron. I'm like, I don't understand. What do you mean using an iron on your hair? That makes no sense to me. So Julia Kelly, I hope you survived that burn <laughs> that happened like 20 years ago. I'm sure you did. Hold yeah, up. I don't know why I remember this right now. That in the not like in the nineties? The nineties, yep. They I didn't know that was still a thing in the nineties. I yeah, thought that I don't know. ended. When did hair straighteners become know. a thing? <laughs> wow. I didn't know people I because when I think of that, I actually think of it as a very sixties thing. Like that was yeah. something that they, they did back then and like they're idiots, but like I get what I get where the logic came from, which was they wanted it to be <laughs> straight and yeah, you know that's because if you think of if you look at images of from the '60s, like the women had incredibly straight hair, like just really, mm-hmm. really straight hair. And I never really thought of like our modern day hair straighteners didn't exist back then, but irons did, and yeah. <laughs> I guess they were ironing. Yeah, no, but don't do yeah. it. Anybody listening, yeah. if, especially if you're young, <laughs> don't do it. It just uh-huh. and don't just don't apply heat to your hair. It's not a good idea. And use a heat protector okay. if you do. Um, well, what do you have for me then? 
It's so silly. And <laughs> one that I highly doubt that you can even um, really do because I was really stuck on this. But would you rather be able to, on your very first shot, be able to do a perfect cat eye eyeliner, just as Al Fanning was able to do, or mm-hmm. on your first go, cook the perfect beef pie, as Christina Hendricks's character was able to do? Ooh. Okay. Now, I just want to preface this. I want to preface this with, I know that you probably don't wear eyeliner on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. To achieve a really perfect eyeliner is very difficult. And it is like, mm-hmm. it's it's incredibly impressive for people who can do it, much less in that movie where she did it as her first shot, which I found very mm-hmm. unrealistic. So, so keep that in mind, that it is like okay. a high accomplishment to be able to do something like that. Okay, I, I I do think that's a good question, and you know, watching my wife when she does her makeup and she sort of does a similar <laughs> style to that, where sometimes she'll have to like be like, oh, this one side is is too good, I now have to fix the other side and redo yeah. it. So I I understand the frustration of not being able to get it perfect. That said, <laughs> I don't uh, oh, I don't know how to word this without me me sounding like a like a creep or a weirdo or whatever, but like. Doing doing your makeup nice while obviously you're doing it for yourself. I don't know if the intention is to make yourself attractive or appealing to other people or not. That is your your own definition and could vary from person to person, whether it's for yourself or for others. Whereas when you're cooking a meal for other people, it very specifically is for sharing and is for other people to enjoy as well. There aren't no side effects you cook a good meal and everyone goes, wow, mm, that was really tasty. I really enjoyed that. Good job. It's just like that the confidence that fills you with and, and the pride you get when, when you cook a really great meal that everyone is enjoying. So I'm definitely going to go with uh, cook a really great pie because that pie looked amazing. It did actually look very good in the movie. But I am going to push mm-hmm. back on this idea that cooking okay. is only because you can cook for yourself and have That's it true. you be literally the only one to taste it and go, damn, I'm good. Just as you could do your eyeliner and look in the mirror and be like, damn, I'm good. <laughs> that that so, is very true. I often find though, when I am left alone and my wife like goes away for a weekend or whatever, uh, my meals get significantly uh, lower in quality. <laughs> lower in quality or like more expensive because now you're just ordering takeout all the time. Well, like if if I'm if I'm home alone for a week, I'll be like, yeah, I'm probably going to order takeout sometimes. But like when I don't, it'll be like, all right, I'm cooking a sausage and some rice and that is it. No, nothing fancy, no sides, no vegetables, nothing or like just a chicken breast in a potato or something like that. I mean, at least it's, it's chicken like breast. Super Keep, basic. Keeping it healthy. Just keeping it healthy. Just... <laughs> it's more like it's just that's the easiest thing I can think of to do <laughs> on my own and not have to worry about what anyone else thinks about the flavor. To me, it would be like make some eggs and toast and yeah. call it a day, which I've done many, many times. <laughs> Let's be completely real here. I'm not a good cook. I wish I could be. But yeah. You know what, though? Actually, I, I was going to – I should ask you, what would you rather for your would you rather? Would you rather the denim die on you or would you rather – imagine you had oh. longer hair, right? Not yep. short hair because obviously yep. – My hair is very short, yes. But imagine you had longer hair. Which one would you rather experience? Not would you rather do, but which one would you rather experience? Do you want the experience of having super straight long hair? Mm. That's tricky because I hate it when it like is raining really hard <laughs> and you're outside and like your jeans soak through and like that's that's the worst feeling because jeans just don't dry. Yeah. So sitting in a bathtub with your jeans on doesn't really sound all that appealing. No, not at all. Uh, I. I am very risk adverse as well, so using an iron to straighten my hair doesn't sound all that appealing either. But if, assuming it's not like, you know, uh, cold water that I'm sitting in in the tub, I'm definitely going to go with that route. If it's at least warm water, I will go there. I didn't think about the temperature of the water. Yes, if it was, <laughs> it would be, that'd be really... I don't know. Would it be cold water? It's very... Well, I, I mean, presumably after a while, it would be cold water. True. Right? And it well, would be... It definitely was funny, though, when they, like, stood up and they, like, are unbuttoning their, their jeans to, like, check to see if it, if they shrunk or not. And just, like, their whole body is covered in dye. Because I'm guessing at this point, the only denim jeans you could buy is basically, like, raw denim. Yeah. Yeah. And... Because actually, when I saw that, too, I remember thinking, 
jeans do that? Like if I got them wet, like my, <laughs> my, my, my like tummy and my legs are going to turn blue. But then I was like, that's yeah. never happened to me. But then, yeah, you're right. Like it was obviously a different class of denim back in the day. So yeah, there, there we go. I, I think those are, are some much more fun and playful <laughs> would you rather's than we really could have gone down because this episode could have gotten a hell of a lot darker and uh, awkward so, and just more awkward, and, and way more awkward. Yeah. But, um, but Rachel, thank you so much for, for leading this episode. That was, that was awesome. I really appreciate it. Where can people find more of your work and, and what have you been working on lately? Uh, you can catch me on uh, rachelcage.com. Uh, just been doing some film reviews. I did a recent one for Exclaim on Peter Rabbit 2, which I actually surprisingly really enjoyed. I didn't think I would, but I think I was just in the right mood for it at the time. And uh, it was a nice, fun family movie. So you can check that out on Exclaim. Um, I've got some kind of new series coming up on my website for like director director retrospectives and um uh, trilogy breakdowns as well just because i really like trilogies um so yeah so you can check that out rachelkh.com and you can get me on twitter at underscore rachelkh awesome well make sure you follow the show on instagram twitter and facebook at contrazoom pod and if you've seen ginger and rosa distributed by a24 let us know your thoughts send an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com thank you to eric and kevin smale for the theme music and to stephanie Pryor for the logo design If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And thank you for checking us out.